Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by Dash Maisler, who runs the Podershka Foundation, which is an extraordinary grassroots vegan Ugandan organization that is doing so many amazing things to lift up both people and animals. Yeah, this is this is my interview of the year. Like, well, not to pretend any of my other interviews, which are all fabulous, but this one, <laughs> oh my God, like it's just amazing. Uh, he's doing so much and and he's totally animal rights and he's totally passionate and he's he's so intelligent in the way he approaches issues. I well, I, I won't give away anymore, but but you have to listen to this. We do have some issues with listening to this because it, it was very hard to understand. It is, of course, totally in English. We each of us have very different accents, but there were a lot of, in addition to different accents, there were a lot of sound problems in the background. And when that happens and we kind of smooth them out and try to get rid of the background sound, it does make the sound a little blurry. So all in all, we decided to do this two ways. In the interview that you will hear right after we gab for a while, there'll be a voiceover by Jocelyn Martinez. And we went through the the whole interview very carefully. And there'll also be a transcript available. And so you can listen to it as read by Jocelyn with Dash's voice in the background. Or at the end of the episode, you can actually hear the original interview if you would like to try that in Dash's own words. So I hope that covers the whole thing because I'm not kidding. You have to listen to this interview. You've been saying Dash should be like, basically running the world. I think you might have said <laughs> running animal activism. But so special thanks to Jocelyn Martinez from our hen house and to Vicki Beachler, who did make sure that there is also a written transcript of this. We have a written transcript of all of our interviews now, which you can find in the show notes. And like Marianne said, hang on till the end of the whole episode if you want to hear this in Dash's words. And on the bonus segment for the flock, I'll be continuing my conversation with Dash. And if you're a flock member, you'll get a link to that bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. You can always also find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can always join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And we would really, really love that if you did. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and terrific conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you are a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with me as well by emailing that. I've really been enjoying that, getting to know all of you, talking about your activism. Many of you want to work in the animal protection movement. Many of you want to step up your volunteering or your community. Some of you want to plug your art into your advocacy. And this is just great chats. So thank you for everyone who is scheduling those. By the way, if you are in the Flock group or if you follow us on social media, you might be noticing that we're posting more news stories because, Marianne, you've been... You've been doing that for a while now, just kind of keeping an eye on the news and trying to sort of step up our social media conversations around 
news as they relate to animals. Yeah, I used to do that all the time. It used to be a big part of, of how I personally keep track of the news and also helping other people keep track of it. And Facebook just became such a pain. And like I like you, it was so hard to reach anybody that that I, I just felt it was kind of a waste of time. And then I got really busy and whatever. But but I really do like doing it. As I said, it really helps me stay on top of things. So I have been posting some news stories that I think might be of interest to people, both on our public Facebook page and on our flock page. They're not generally the same thing. So I kind of uh, sort them out between the two. And I and we're also reposting some of them at least to Instagram Instagram stories. That's how you post news stories on Instagram, right? I know yes. nothing about Instagram. No, you're doing I'm great. I'm stupid you're doing about great. Instagram. And on, and on Twitter as well. And soon we'll be doing videos of Jasmine dancing with her dogs. We're going to put them on TikTok. No, uh, that part's no, a lie. Not. That part's a lie. lie. But it's not a bad idea. I am going to give you a little bit uh, extra, you know, patience today, however, because... Yeah, please do. Well, do you want to explain why that is? Well, it's not like that big a deal, but I do have COVID and and I pested, pested positive. <laughs> you pested yeah, positive. But, but I'm totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> she pested positive and she's um, facting Hein. You know, I, I really, I mean, I'm not very sick at all. And I do feel kind of fine as long as I'm sitting still doing nothing. But I do realize when I try to do things that I'm kind of stupid and kind of tired. So, yeah. And and I was looking at, you know, I put together the notes for this little, we just do a few notes when we're going to sit down and do this. And they're all wrong. <laughs> we managed, You managed to fix them as you went along, I noticed, because everything I wrote was wrong. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not at the top of my game, let's face it. Well, I mean, I will say, because people are probably going to be concerned that you did get that medicine. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, Paxlovid. Right. And I got the medicine. And apparently this is like, you know, it's probably the less dreadful strain. And I've had every vaccine that they will have allowed me to have, which is four. So, yeah, I'm well taken care of. And I'm not concerned, but I am a little stupid. <laughs> Enough with the self-deprecating. and. More, my my wife has it too. So I don't know how you don't, I, but I don't either. I yeah. I I kind of assumed I would get it like either the same day or the next day as as her at least, and then I have it. So we started to take some big precautions, but you know, I assumed that it might be coming for me, <laughs> and so on onward. And and in the meantime, before we knew that more had it, we went to this thankfully outdoor contact free used bike sale and we got these two used bikes and went for a bike ride and i have to say when we got home i first of all loved bike riding so much and secondly i then google mapped how you ride from vegan restaurant to vegan restaurant in rochester which was pretty funny i don't understand how you do that cuz you don't like to you don't like to ride on on streets you only right. like to ride on bike like bike, bike paths. paths. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found there are anyway. many of right near your house and, and loads of paths along the river that are very safe. But so are you going to take your life in your hands and, and drive through traffic to get to vegan restaurants? No, no, I can drive to Cleo and Ken, which is a vegan store in Pittsford, which is right outside of Rochester. It's like, you know, 10 minutes away in car. And I could ride there completely on a bike path. So I'll probably really? go. Yeah. Wow. It goes right by the Erie Canal. By the way, speaking of this uh, PSA for moving to Rochester, the 
story that I wrote last year for Veg News on why Rochester is one of the best small cities for vegans has somehow gotten picked up again and it's trending on Veg News, which is so funny because, you know, every now and then these pieces go back up in the world. So I'm anticipating lots more vegans moving here. Very exciting. Speaking of vegans who live here, one of our flock members and one of our former podcast guests, Pearl Brunt, uh, sent me a message after last week's interview with Gwendolyn Church. And she said, after listening to your podcast about fishes, I was convinced to ask the coordinator of a carnival-esque fundraiser to forego the goldfish prizes. We settled on starter plants instead. Thanks for the inspiration. So that was amazing. And Pearl is just incredible. Yeah, she she really is amazing. She's always thinking of new things to do and then actually going out and doing them. (laughs) Yeah, she does. She actually does them. Whereas I just sit on the couch eating popcorn and thinking about things that could be done. And then I then I like go to sleep. All right. Before we get to our wonderful interview with Dash, we have a couple things to update you on. Slutty Vegan founder Pinky Cole raised a whole lot of money, $25 million. And I just love seeing this story because she is really a business person for the ages, don't you think? She is like completely amazing. I think you know like didn't you interview her for for veg news yeah so you know her a little bit i certainly don't but she is amazing this one of her investors here is danny myers the restaurant impresario and yeah she's going to take it national and there are going to be branch there they have in the works plans to open 20 new branches so check out if if your city is among the ones rochester unfortunately is not one of the ones i've seen so far which doesn't shock me but um, I think Brooklyn is. And so, yeah, Slutty Vegan looks completely amazing. I've never had the chance to to uh, eat there. But if lines around the block mean anything, she is going to change the world one vegan burger at a time. So exciting. So aside from that exciting news, the other day you sent me a video to watch and I was like, cool, I'll watch it later. And then I forgot and you bugged me. And I watched it and it was like the best thing I've ever seen. So we're going to put this in the show notes. But can you talk about this since you were basically jumping up and down about it, even in your state? Well, I wasn't exactly jumping up and down, but the singers certainly are. It's about a Eurovision entry. And I did post this to both the our Hen House page and, and the... Uh, the vlog page, because I have now become the biggest promoters of this Latvian band, uh, which entered, I don't know whether all of you, uh, depending on where you are in the world, you either like definitely know everything about Eurovision or you don't know anything about Eurovision and never heard of it because most people in the States don't know anything about it. But it is this crazy song competition where this is as much as I know about it, where every country in Europe has an entry and the Latvian entry is called Eat Your Salad. And the first line is uh, had to be censored for the, for the show. And it starts off, instead of meat, I eat veggies and pussy. I like them both fresh, like them both juicy. Oh, my God. <laughs> the energy, the unbelievable energy in this band is just crazy. Uh, it's so good. You have to watch it. I really? It was actually, I noticed that uh, John Oliver put a clip on his show and like couldn't stop laughing. So, uh yeah, really good stuff. Wow. 
Sorry if anyone's listening with children. It was really nice having you as an Arhat Now's listener this whole time until you stopped listening when Marianne said that. Yeah, I am pretty excited about it too. I love it. I'm like, I can't stop watching it. So definitely you should. I think we should get to the interview today. What do you think? Absolutely. I can't wait. Fad Karim Savoom, commonly known as Dash Meisler, is the founder of the Podershka Foundation, a Ugandan nonprofit dedicated to creating a world of equity, compassion, and justice by supporting vulnerable people and improving their day-to-day lives. Each of Dash's projects have the long-term goal of enabling participants to become economically and educationally independent enough to live in harmony with others, not only with other human beings, but also with non-human animals. Dash has a long-standing vision of multi-species justice, one that is informed by his deep commitment to human as well as animal rights and is known for his effective and efficient animal activism throughout Uganda and his friendly, inspiring methodologies to spread veganism all over his country. As we said earlier, this will be voiceover by Jocelyn Martinez. And if you want to hear the actual interview with Dash speaking for himself, it is at the end of the episode today. Dash will be joining Marianne right after this. Abbott's Butcher is leading the next generation of plant-based meat by using real food ingredients to craft premium plant-based proteins that are flavorful, protein-packed, and super versatile. Abbott's Butcher is the only plant-based meat brand that is free of soy, gluten, preservatives, and canola oil. And they never include any added natural or artificial flavorings. Their meats are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Even I was able to do it. And as you might know, I'm not the best cook in the world. I particularly enjoyed the chorizo, which we prepared alongside a bunch of vegetables as a sort of taco salad. It was so good and so easy. And I myself mostly eat gluten-free and mostly eat whole foods. And this fit right in. We also tried the incredible chopped chicken and the ground beef. And the ground beef, I added some vegan cheese and it kind of gave me like a hamburger helper feel. I loved it. So look for Abbott's Butcher Chorizo in Target stores or visit abbottsbutcher.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. That's A-B-B-O-T-S Butcher. Dot com. Again, it's abbotsbutcher.com. There's two Bs, one T. And that way you'll find a retailer near you. I love this and I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Dash. Uh, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. I don't know a lot about your work and I'm really eager to find out more. But actually, I'd like to start off with a story I read on your website about your experience slaughtering chickens, and which ultimately led to your going vegan and, and having a different awareness about animals. Can you tell us that story? So both my parents were poultry farmers, and growing up, I witnessed what I, I myself. So both my parents were poultry farmers, and growing up, I became involved in the poultry business. I have four other siblings, but growing up, I was the one who was invested into the business as my other siblings were into different ventures. So, this means that I witnessed all kinds of horrible methods we do with the animals, with the birds. 
I remember the specific scenario where this little guy was given a lot of medication so that because the whole aim is self-centered for the farmers, they want profit at the end of the day. So they fed this little guy with a lot of medications so that he could grow so fast. And at the end of it, this guy couldn't move. The legs he had, it couldn't support his own weight. So whenever they brought food to the paddocks, you saw that other birds would run over him because he was too heavy. So if that guy couldn't come and the farmer wouldn't come and carry him to where the food was, he wasn't going to eat. In many cases, there are other guys like him all the time. Another scenario that I kind of remember is when, during the debeaking process, because here it's different by the African tradition, how they do it. They get a knife, dip it into hot fire, and then cut off the beaks. Other scenarios where they give out medication, it's given to the hens and it causes them to lay very huge eggs. A lot of times when they lay huge eggs, the intestines come out along with the eggs. Some of the farmers, at times, they could separate these birds from their other friends. At other times, they put them back and the rest of the hens would peck at the bottoms of these hens. And by the end of the day, they would die. So when I searched my memories and more things came up, plainer and plainer and plainer. And by that time, I had no idea about veganism or animal rights. So because I was the child of the owners, I was more into the business. I was head of it. So I started not doing slaughter. Because when the time would come, I never felt I had the right to tell who should die and who should live when people came into the houses to take a bird. So I kept myself from slaughtering, and I only did marketing. But then I think also with time, it came out as, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I think I've had enough of this. But at the same time that I'm quitting this whole thing, I'm not vegan, and I don't know any idea about veganism. And so in that whole process, I tell my siblings, I'm quitting this whole thing. I'm quitting the business, blah, blah, blah. And that's the same time that I lose my mom. And after that time, I was with my friend Ayenda watching some videos from the Middle East. And they were slaughtering, you know, they were killing people. And I tell my friend, I never want to die like that. He's not vegan either, but he told me, well, that's the same way you kill the birds. This hit me differently because I was like, oh, it really made me think. So I go on the internet. I don't know how things came about, but I learned about veganism and what it's about. So at this time, I'm saying I'm going vegan and I learned about animal rights. But in a real sense, I wasn't vegan. I was vegetarian. Of course, I couldn't tell the difference between the two. So when I tell my sister that I'm going vegan and she's like, oh, so you're not going to eat eggs and milk. So that's when she told me that vegans are not supposed to consume eggs and milk. So that was big. Then I quit them because I already knew the history between eggs and what we do, what the egg industry is doing to the birds. I already knew. I was already part of it. So that made me make a big, big change. So yeah, that's roughly, that's the whole thing about me. It's an amazing story. Did this cause a, a rift between you and your family? Were they angry at you? Yeah, of course. Because now, at this time, when I was in charge of the business and my mom, so at this same time, when I'm going vegan, the same time I lose my mom. Yeah, of course. Because now at this time, when I was in charge of the business and my mom, so the same time when I'm going vegan is the same time I lose my mom. So that means I'm totally and entirely responsible for the business, for the family business. So I'm telling them I'm quitting. At first, they think it's something I'm messing around with, but then they get to see that I'm serious. So it brought a very big rift because now there's no one else in charge of the business and the business is failing. So what now? I'm quitting. So this brought a very big rift because now there is no more income and the business failed. It closed. It shut. 
When that happened, there was no one else to take over because my two big brothers, one was in the nonprofit world, another was in procurement. And then my sisters were too young to carry the business on, and my dad was occupied in something else. So this caused the business to fail completely. So that means that I'm going home. At this time, I'm trying to figure my life out. I don't know what is going to happen next with me because this is the only business that I entirely know how to run. I never ran another business. So this has me coming back home and they have prepared me and blah, blah, and they're mocking and all that. And at that same time, I'm still staying with them at home. And the questions from my parents are like, what are you going to do now? This is what you had. I can't help in anything else. That's what my dad is saying. This is the only business you know. Try to figure your life out. Now, this means that I'm in a new era where I have no idea what to do. My next idea is to start looking for jobs. I'm on the internet. I'm trying to figure out animal-related, you know, animal activism in my area. And there was completely nothing around me in Uganda. No organization does animal rights activism. So I decided to leave home, and I'm like, let me just, you know, try my luck wherever. Because at that time, there was too much strain in my family. Yeah, there's no way I can tell my dad, like, I need capital. I need to start this. There's no way he's going to say yes. You know, because quitting, it is an opportunity you've missed to them. They see it as a business opportunity. But it is something I've had enough of because I'm having nightmares from the time I spent there. I witnessed every kind of horrible, horrible thing imaginable. But because I was born into it, right from the moment I was born to the moment I quit, that was a business I was in. So that means I have zero knowledge about anything else. So it was really a very, very rough time. Yeah, it sounds like an enormously tough time. And it ultimately led to the Podskra Foundation, which is what we're going to be talking about. Am I pronouncing that right, Podskra? Yeah, Budushka. Budushka. And can you just tell people briefly, and then we'll get into a lot of detail, but tell people briefly what the foundation is. So Podushka, it's a Croatian term that means support. So I got this term after the World Cup. So Podushka, it's a Croatian term that means support. So I came up with the name after the Soccer World Cup Finals, where we had Croatia and France at the finals. So I chose Croatia because the Croatian team was the underdog, and no one ever thought that they would reach the finals, but they did. So that's why I chose the Croatian term, because the team was an underdog and it rose up. It never won the cup, but I think it's enough. So it was the same thing with the journey that I wanted to create. I know it's not going to be an easy journey, and I may not win the whole everyone's heart. But at the end of the day, I'm going to create that great impact that I want. I may not be able to live to see the results, but the seeds that we plant will create the change. So that's a whole story relating to what we are trying to do. The Padishka Foundation is a vegan-based foundation that looks at both humans and non-humans. So with the non-humans specifically, we kind of center our focus on the farmed animals. Why farmed animals? Because each and everyone here who's trying to fight for the animals, they are fighting for the wild animals. No one's taking their time to look into the farmed animals. And with our human bits, we are looking at kids and children and women. However, we have various projects, but every kind of project that we do is strictly vegan-based, no matter what kind of people it's trying to reach. We envision a world where both humans and non-humans can coexist peacefully. So the whole idea is to help the humans make informed choices that ethically support and improve the lives of the non-humans. I love the way things are really interwoven showing the benefit to each. And a lot of people, when confronting poverty and vulnerability among humans, think that incorporating animals is just too hard. Why do you think that it's important to do them both? Because well, the whole idea is that coexistence and peacefully, and we all have to benefit each other. 
because the whole idea is coexistence and living peacefully, and we all have to benefit each other. For example, if you look at how the animal industries are approaching world hunger today by building large factory farms, and they are failing. With all of our projects, we are looking at providing people with meals, and these foods are completely plant-based. And we are giving them food, and we are telling them that the reason why we are giving these foods is because we don't want to cost anyone their life. Because we also want you to respect the other animals. So at the end of the day, they're getting the information, they're saving a life, and they're surviving. You look at another project whereby we are supporting women who are badly off, and we are telling them, you're in a bad situation financially. How can we help, and at the same time, help animals? This is easy. Let's get animal-free, cruelty-free products, raw materials, make our clothes out of this, and sell this. So at the end of the day, you're uplifting lives. You're telling people, this product you're trying to buy is cruelty-free. And someone who made this product knows that they can't make this bag out of a crocodile skin, out of a snake skin, out of a cow skin, because these creatures, they're sentient beings. They need a life. So they're deciding to do this. You're creating a weighing scale, and you're putting everything at balance. At the end of the day, no one is suffering. I'm happy because I'm putting on a cruelty-free item and there's an animal at the same time that I'm advocating for a life to be spared. So it's basically, it's logic. At the end of the day, it's just simple logic. Only that we are, people are just failing first to choose. I totally agree. I love the way you put that. It's just simple logic and yet so many people can't see it. The situation we are in now, you look at the situation we are in now, why I'm saying it's logic. The whole COVID stuff, things are getting you look at the situation we are in now, why I'm saying it's logic, the whole COVID stuff, things you're getting, you know, the whole lockdown and so on and so forth with the COVID stuff. It's logic where it came from and how we can better prepare for the next one. And we shouldn't have to spend even a minute explaining it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit more. You mentioned food distribution. Tell us a little bit more how that works. How, what kind of food distribution do you do and what kinds of foods do you distribute and, and where? We have a variety of food distribution projects. Uh, there is one that happens in schools. And that's school. We have a variety of food distribution projects. There is one that happens in schools, and that is called the Vegan Schools Feeding Program. Now, this feeding program goes to schools that don't offer a meal to their kids in a day. So you find that already getting to school is a problem. And you find that most of these schools might be very cheap, but they have to pay something. And at the end of the day, parents can't afford to pack lunch, breakfast, or anything. And the school itself can't afford to provide a lunch. So this means that the kids are going to spend the whole day hungry. At the end of the day, them studying is going to be useless because they are studying on empty stomachs. It's no way for them to process. So what we did is we launched this project. And before we launched that project, we talked with the school administration and the schools themselves, where we are launching this project and explain why we are having plant-based foods and why we are not having any kind of milk, why we are not serving meat, why we are not serving chickens. We hold it under the vegan school campaign. And we're like, we're going to be providing, let's say, close to, we have two schools signed up and we provide 400 meals each day. So the whole idea is we talk to them and we are like, hey, this happens from Monday to Friday because that's when kids are at school and we are providing them lunch. So we are doing this because we want to save animals. The reason why we are not giving you meat is because we believe that this animal's right is to live. However, every time when you're talking to people about the ethical bits, people here, that's an experience. Very few people, especially with our local communities, very few people are going to understand the ethical bits. So they are going to listen to you more when you're talking about the health aspects because we have 
high rates of hypertension, blood pressure, diabetes, and so on. So that's my ongoing way of talking to the rural kinds of environments because that's really what they listen to. And another thing is that with this kind of rural environment, these people already can't afford the meat, not by choice, but for financial reasons. So at one point, it's kind of easy for them to disseminate that information. You're like, yes, I understand you're going to eat meat once in a year, maybe the Christmas season, but what's the use of you keeping your body so clean and safe and just this one time, you turn it into a tomb of diseases and so on and so forth. So that's the one project we have that's called the Vegan School Feeding Project. And then another project we have is called the Compassionate Feeding Program. So with the Compassionate Feeding Program, this happens around town in slum areas, and it's basically for people living in slums and people who have to forge to find a meal, for their kids especially, because there's a high number of kids on the streets. So what we do is that we ally with our local councils and we are like, we want to be providing food on such and such dates. So this food, it's always warm, of course, warm and hot. And we provide with this meal with the Compassionate Feeding Program, we provide white rice, cabbages, avocado, grains like amaranth and so on, and then rice. So we package it and we distribute the packages. However, this vegan school campaign, we give pocho, beans and rice. So for Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, it's beans and pocho. Pocho is maize flour when it's crushed. And then the other two days, it's rice. So that's cheaper. We try to make it more cheap because we have high numbers of kids you need to feed. And with our compassionate feeding program, this basically is supposed to provide 300 meals a week. That's for 100 people that we take it every week, whereas with the school program, it's about 400 meals a day. So we have to make it as cheap as possible so that we can feed a large number of kids in the school. Of course, of course. So in, in a lot of instances, is the food that you're giving people really in a line with traditional diets? Yeah. Because I would assume that traditionally there's not a lot of meat in most African diets. Is that true? So basically, I, my personal, the, the way I do my activism is that I never bring in any kind of Western world kind of alternatives. So basically, the way I do my activism is that I never bring in any kind of Western world kind of alternatives. Because if I try to bring them in this diet, it's going to bring up excuses for their prices because they are so damn expensive. So the whole idea is when I'm promoting veganism, I try to promote it in a local context. Because I need people to understand it in a local context, not in a European context. Because sometimes people will say, oh, that's a European context. Veganism is from the Western world, you know? And then they forget that 99% of our staple foods are vegan. So the problem is like from schools, you look at kids like myself. I was in boarding school for the first 18 years of my life. Of course, I started boarding school when I was six years up to the time when I was 18. So that means that every day I had to eat beans and rice flour or rice. So when I'm out of school and you're telling me that beans are high in proteins, I'm like, oh, come on. I've been eating beans for my whole life. So these kids want to change to something else. There's that transition, that nutrition transition, and they're attaching it to financial status, attaching it to parties, to a good life. They think like you go to a party without me, it's not a party. So that's one of the other problems. So back to your question, yes, all the meals that we give are 100% traditional and vegan-based. When we have maybe a food sampling event, then we try to put it in something extra, you know, for the people to get excited. Because also we are trying to point to a local context and we, and we need to mix our local food with something international, you know, and this excites them. And like, wow, you can eat potatoes in this way. You can eat rice in this way. You can prepare. So we just prepare it differently than how they make it traditionally. But then at the end of the day, it's still the same type of food. 
It's still a traditional food. And I've heard a lot of people talking about that approach as being a decolonizing approach to to diet, that going back to traditional diets and not incorporating a lot of Western foods is really a decolonial kind of approach. Do you think of it that way? Yeah, because we look at how it came into our, our context, you know, because literally in, back in the days in the African traditional society. Yeah, because you look at how meat came into our context, you know, because back in the days of African traditional society, yes, there was hunting, but then meat wasn't consumed on a daily basis. And it's after the slavery that trading comes in, colonialism comes in, and they're introducing this other kind of cash crops and so on. Then trading comes in, they start to consume meat, and they start attaching it to a wealth status. So like I say, our type of food, it's 100% vegan, because look at my tribe and their type of food, specifically matoki. Matoki are unripe bananas, but then they are steamed with beans. When you look at even some of the nomads that we have here who live on pastoralism, they don't even put on animal skins. They put on cotton, some kind of clothes. You never find them putting on a cow. They are nomads. They rear animals. But then you can never find them putting on an animal skin. You find them putting on cloth, just tying themselves here, covering only this part. I mean, it's a cotton cloth. So you just move on to what colonialism is doing. They are trying to kill a crocodile, and then they are making something out of it. And then someone wants a Chanel bag, and because someone wants all of that, it's killing us. So the whole idea is we're trying to promote veganism in an African context rather than on a European context. Trying to do that was damaging us because at the beginning of it all, like when I was writing with Anonymous for The Voiceless, I had zero experience. And this is in 2019. I had zero experience with activism and I'm trying to do activism, but in a European context. So we move on to the biggest mall in the city and we want to do activism because we have seen that's how Europeans are doing it. And we were literally arrested for it. We had to run for our lives. Of course, I didn't understand the language they were speaking, who my other colleague was understanding. He was like, hey, Dash, you need to run. These guys are coming to arrest us. You were handing out leaflets. You were talking to people. No, we were trying to do a cube. Oh, okay. A cube. Yeah. And then yeah. they were like, hey, what you're trying to do is bad for our business. They could actually beat us up. And then they were like, hey, what you're trying to do is bad for our business. People actually beat us up and there's nowhere we could report it. Because you look at here, especially, well, not everyone, but literally most of the police are corrupt. They all just want someone paying something or I'm not going to give you attention. So that means that we had to rethink. Because even though this is where we wanted to do a cube, we had to pay for security for people to gather. Just in case, because we were next to a small butcher, so we had to pay for our own security. So you look at it and some things are worth it, yes. But then others are not because we as activists, we have to also consider our lives. Because when something happens to my life, there is no other me who's going to come up and fight. You know, that's one minus when instead it should be one plus. So that means we had to sit down and think on how best we can promote veganism and at the same time protect ourselves. Another thing we have to do is we have to balance the humans and non-humans. You're like, ah, but Africa, you have so many problems. Why are you focusing on animals when people are dying in the war? Why are you focusing on animals? Why are you having a sanctuary when people are hungry? So that's why we are like, hey, let's uplift people out of poverty. Let's uplift animal lives. Let's uplift education for kids. Let's uplift animal rights at the same time. I love that approach. It's so positive and you can reach people who you wouldn't otherwise reach. It's a win-win. It's it, it's good for everyone, both the people and the animals. 
Can you talk a little bit about agriculture? Because a lot of what goes on in the talk about vegan agriculture and raising plants, and it has to do with people are always saying, well, in Africa, they couldn't do that because you have to graze animals. There's land that you have to graze animals on. But you have another project, I think it's called Project Grow, that that is really focused on plant-based agriculture for Africa. Is that true? So about Project Grow, Project Grow is basically focused for the slums people, people who live in slums. And so... So about Project Grow, which is specifically focused on people who live in slums. And so the reason why we're focusing on the slum areas is because the kind of beneficiaries we're looking at. There's a high rate of HIV for sex workers in slums. There's a high rate of domestic violence. There's a high rate of teenage mothers and so on and so forth. But then the major concept for this project is, is because these people are so congested in slums, like there's no space for them to raise their family and there are very high rates of poverty. There's a high crime rate. It is a problem for them to find meals in a day. There's just no space from house to house. There's just quarters, small, small quarters. Like even sometimes I can't even fit in these quarters. So what we said is like, how can we promote veganism into this lifestyle? Because at the same time, we look at normal socioeconomic problems and we see them as opportunities to spread veganism. We look at this financial or social problem. So how can we turn this problem into a solution? How can you find that solution and at the same time make it as an opportunity for us to talk about veganism in such a community? So let's introduce this project. So Project Grow specifically teaches people how to grow food in containers, polyfilm, plastics, or even old clothes. So these containers, they turn these containers, the clothes, the plastics, into gardens. So you find someone that has their tomatoes. They have about 15 tomatoes, but they are growing in a small tin thing on the wall. So that means that all they have to do is to go out of their house or out the window and get the food and have it for their own consumption. The whole idea is to promote veganism. That's the base, the foundation, promote veganism. Because we need to tell them why we are teaching them backyard farming. Because people are like, hey, you're not giving us chickens. You're not giving us goats. The government is giving us goats. We are like, hey, the reason is because we are promoting animal rights. Because when you talk animal rights, the first thing that comes to their mind are the wild animals, or maybe dogs or cats. It's never about these animals. And then you bring it about, and they are like, ah, everyone gets surprised. Oh, this is what you're talking about. So the whole idea is that for them, they have nutritious foods. This food is nutritious, and it's fresh, which you never find anywhere. And then it's organic. Look at the kind of things they spray on the tomatoes that are not organic. You find a lot of things that they do to the plants. So the idea is we give about 17 types of veggies. And within those types, there are five kinds of spices and then two kinds of herbs. Because they are slums, there's a lot of stagnant water. So there are mosquitoes, there's a lot of malaria. So we provide these plants that they plant around their houses that repel the insects and the mosquitoes and so on and so forth. So there are about 12 veggies like potatoes, carrots, spinach, kale, eggplants, and so much more, 12 types. Then we look at tea spices, we look at herbs, and so on and so forth. So yeah, that was the idea to help them get nutritious veggies right at their doorsteps. And those who have surplus can also sell it to their neighbors because at the end of the day, they want income for themselves because we're living on about less than a dollar a day or sometimes even nothing. So that means they have to get money out of this where possible. Those with small, small spaces, we utilize these spaces as much as we can for the rest of the community. And we launched that program in the first wave. I think it was 2020. We support 10 families. And then early last year, we got a grant from Food for Life. 
we supported 50 families with our grant. So that means that with 50 families, about 200 beneficiaries were being provided with food, with veggies for a meal, and they can get about two meals out of these veggies because they have different kinds. You know, that means someone can have an eggplant with kale or with spinach or coriander and so on and so forth. So they have those meals or then they can change. So that means they don't have to have the same type of meal every day. That gives them a chance for these plants to last longer as they are consuming a different kind of vegetable. That sounds like an amazing program. Yeah, exactly. can really lift up people's lives. Yeah, the program ended around last, late last year. Yeah, that program ended around late last year. So now we are looking into, we are looking for more and more grants and some funds so that we can do that same project. How do you raise money? It's mostly, your money mostly comes through grants? Well, yeah, initially before that, because me and my colleagues, we do graphic designing. So the whole idea is that. Well, me and my colleagues, we do graphic design. So the whole idea is that we have our own income planted into promoting the organization. But apparently right now, I think we have two projects that have been funded. We have the Vegan School Feeding Campaign and the Compassionate Feeding Program. Compassionate Feeding Program is about to end. It has been funded by a well-fed world, but it's ending. The grant is done this month. And then we have Magic Marble Foundation that's also helping us with the vegan feeding program at schools and also the Compassionate Feeding Program. And that grant is also getting done this month. And then we also have an upcoming grant that will go through ProVeg that's for the vegan school campaign. It will go to schools. But then basically 70%, we raise it from a personal basis, from us. Oh, you do? Yeah, like right. from our own income because are we trying to, you know, it's something that we are doing, not because of what goes. Yeah, like from our own income because, you know, it's something we are doing not because we were told, but out of compassion for what we want to do. So this is how we are getting there. And then another thing is that most of the organizations that we are going to to get funds, they always want something that's already in progress, something that has been funded. So that means we have to raise money and create a sample. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so That means we, <laughs> yeah. we have to get our own money. We, we sample the project. We show, hey, this is what we have done. That means we have to get our own money. We sample our projects. We show, hey, this is what you have done so far. And this is what you're projecting. And this is where we want to reach. So yes, me and my team, we use our own money from graphic designing and other gigs that we raise. So we raise some money. We sample a project. And we're like, so let's sample this project and see. And then we look for the funding for this project. So yeah. That's the whole idea. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing amazing work. I do want you to tell people how they can find out more about you and, and support you if they wish. But before that, I just kind of wanted to ask you a really big question. Do you think that Africa in particular, and perhaps in particular Uganda, has a particularly important role in turning the earth in new directions? The West has gone so far in, in the wrong direction with climate change exploding and with, with what we're doing to animals turning Earth into, it's just, it's a nightmare what has been done. Do you think perhaps there can be leadership from Africa on these issues? Yeah, yeah, there is. And, they, and I think they already did as well trying to come up, you know, and they're spearheading more so with the climate change direction. Yeah, yeah, there is. And like, I think the ideas are already starting to come up and they're spearheading mostly in the climate change direction. With our work, because of me, I put a lot of focus on animal abuse rather than the environment in that whole perspective, we kind of lack inspiration within our sector. But I think, yes, we can, because if you look at the kind of work that I'm doing, sometimes I think I'm doing my work and I'm like, I'm seeing no change, you know? 
but then there's the kind of people we serve, both on the local context at the African level and the Western world. They're like, hey, we are doing this because of what you are doing, because of what you're going through. You've changed lives. And that alone, I'm like, hey, I need to keep pushing. I need to keep going. Truth be told, the kind of work we do keeps existing because teaching people, going to people and telling them this is only good, because world culture has made them think that animals are there for us and you're trying to change a mind, especially for the grown-up minds. But a lot of the time it's mentally draining because we work with different people in different age groups. You find that a certain project that you're doing for, like maybe for teens, is mentally supporting you to keep on fighting for the projects where you're trying to push to change the mind of older people. Yeah, in a larger context, each and every day we are growing as in Africa and within it, people are waking up. Because now, like I said, all our projects that we do target a specific group of people. You look at the vegan school campaign where we target, we are going to schools, so that targets mainly teens and school-aged children. Look at the street activism that we do. That measure, that focuses on the street-going people. You look at for the elderly. We reach them through feeding programs. We are starting up clubs at universities focused on the youth because most of the youth, like my friends specifically, I can't just go up to them and be like, hey, go vegan. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to start an argument with me. They will be demanding facts. So you look at our vegan university clubs that are going to be maybe handling debates, handling, you know, our community outreach and so on and so forth. And then you look at also the very young toddlers because our activism begins from the age of six with kids of six years where we see it's effective. We went to this primary school, and for primary school, this one has kids from about seven years to 11 years old, and we talked about veganism. It was a day at school, so kids went back home to their parents, and they refused to eat meat. They refused totally. It was a very big number of kids, and we were supposed to go back to the school for more classes and to create clubs, because after we go to these schools, we'll create clubs, create vegan clubs that give people resources, t-shirts, leaflets, and more resources. So we were supposed to go back to the school because we had only focused on about two classes. So we have to go back to that school and engage the whole school. However, the school suspended us. I'm, yeah, like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, like, you, you <laughs> that, I've seen the same thing yeah. happen here. You shouldn't come back because parents were raising concerns. Our kids are longer eating meat. They were like, you shouldn't come back because parents were raising concerns. Our kids are no longer eating meat and we don't want this. So when you're going to schools, what we realized is that we can't go to schools and say, hey, we have come here, we need to talk about veganism. That's going to be a very big no. So what we do, we have other aspects that we talk about. We talk about bullying, talk about depression among kids, anti-drug abuse, life's concerns. We draft letters to school administrations and we say, hey, we want a platform to talk to your kids about bullying, anti-depression among teens, anti-drug abuse. Please give us a platform. So then we go to the school, we talk about this, we address the topics we were supposed to, and at the end of the day, when you're done with those things, that's when you bring in veganism. So initially, we attach it to bullying. We first talk about bullying, then we share some food, just so they understand. And kids are the best people you can ever work with. Their conscience is so free. They aren't like with the youth, because with the youth, their ego is going to block them from accessing the truth. Absolutely. Whereas with the kids, they are so free. They are going to be like, hey, this animal is depressed. This animal is being bullied. Because that's what they always say. Animals are bullied, you know? So kids are going back home, and they don't want to consume animals. They don't want to do this. So parents are coming to the school administration like, 
hey, our kids are stopping. What's happening? So that school is like, hey, please don't come back to our school. We don't need your services anymore. It sounds like you're approaching activism with such a a wise, like you've tried things that didn't work, like your cube and going in and just selling veganism and 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 then you're adjusting and working with people's attitudes and and managing to survive. So that's that's the, probably the most important thing to be able to do when you're an activist, kind of make those adjustments to make it work. But I totally agree that that kids and especially in the context of anti-bullying because of course farm animals are the most bullied creatures on earth and kids are the ones who are able to see that. So you're doing amazing work. Uh, I'm so glad we had a, a chance to to hear about it. Before I let you go, just tell people where they can find you online and on social media so that if they're interested, they can follow up. On our website is kodoshikafoundation.org and we are on LinkedIn, we are on Instagram and we are on Facebook. Our website is kodoshikafoundation.org P-O-D-R-S-K-A foundation.org and we're on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram and we have a Facebook. And we are there as Podoshka Foundation. And we will put all of those links in our show notes so people will be able to find them. Dash, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to hear about the work that you're doing. It's remarkable. Um, yeah, thank you. Maybe one other project I didn't mention. Uh, thank you. Maybe one other project I didn't mention. Oh, sure. It's called The Lady Project. Now, The Lady Project specifically focuses on women and teenage mothers, specifically HIV-positive women, domestic violence victims, and women living in poverty. So what we do is we teach women how to make materials like clothes, jewelry, and so on and so forth. However, we always tell them why we are using cruelty-free materials. So what we also do, maybe, say if a woman comes up and we teach her how to make clothes, we have to make sure to find a market for her clothes, for her products that she has made, because this is a problem. We have many institutions here teaching kids and people that, hey, let me teach you how to sew. So if someone makes clothes and you won't find them tons and tons of customers, they don't have a market. So what we do as an organization, we teach them how to make cruelty-free products from African fabrics, and then we look for the market as an organization. So we pay the market. So money that comes back, part of it goes to the organization, and the other part goes to the women. The part that goes to the women is for the improvement of their lives for themselves. What goes to the organization, we use it to empower a new group of women. So our plan is to have for the women a position where for two months, we have training for them to come in the evening and then two or three who come in the morning. So it's like they work in shifts. And the weekends are for the experts, the ones who have already learned to make their own products. Whereas the weekdays are for lessons. And this program is hoping to resume soon because we have been down due to COVID. And we used to run our sewing machines and the company who we were renting from sold their machines. So now we have been off and we haven't had a space. So now we are looking into having a space and having our own machines. Well, do you think you'll ever make those products available online? Yeah, actually, speaking of that, we have been in the past years before COVID, we had planned to have... Yeah, actually speaking of that, in the past years before COVID, we had planned to have a fundraiser with an organization that's called The Sentient Project. It's headed by a gentleman in the U.S. named Daniel Turbert, who does photography. So he comes here annually. He was here last year, and we had a photo shoot of the products that we made, and he moved some of the products to the U.S. And hopefully this year, we are going to have an Etsy store come up online and also on our website. If all goes well, we should have a store online to sell these products as we are waiting for the fashion shop Kickstarter. Hopefully, if all goes well this year. 
That's very exciting. We'll be looking forward to that. And thank you for telling us about it. And thanks for joining us today, Dash. This has really been fascinating. I hope we can keep in touch with you. Yeah, sure thing. The pleasure is always mine. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Can agriculture save the planet? Of course, it's the pork business magazine that is asking that, not some other more benign form of agriculture. And what they're doing here is they're reporting on the events. This is by one Jennifer Scheich. They're reporting on the events at Animal Agriculture Alliance's 2022 Stakeholders Summit in, of course, in Kansas City. Uh, If we get it right, agriculture can, in fact, save the planet. That's what Jack Bobo, and I don't like to make fun of people's names. That's really wrong. But his name is Jack Bobo. Um, He's the CEO of Futurity. And that's what he thinks. He thinks that that agriculture, apparently, including pork agriculture, can um, can save the planet. Okay, they don't go into detail, uh, but they do uh, talk about some other speakers at the summit. I always like to hear about what's going on at the summit. Registered dietitian and author. Oh, she's an author, so she must be right. Diana Rogers highlighted the importance of meat, milk, poultry, and eggs in a nutritious diet. Do you think you need all of them all in one day? I don't know. Because they're high-quality protein sources. This whole high-quality protein, they just won't let it go. It's such nonsense. And they provide essential nutrients that would be hard to replace if these foods were removed from our plates. Well, they're not that hard to replace because, you know, I'm alive. (laughs) So, (laughs) apparently. And I I don't work really hard at anything. Uh, Roger said we cannot take meat away from people who depend on it for their nutrition or food security. Well, I think we can't take food away from people, but uh, I doubt that anybody has to have meat. I'm sorry. In a legal and legislative update session, this one is weird, experts discuss some of the primary issues on the docket, including California's Proposition 12 and Massachusetts Question 3, and what attendees can do to help. I, I mean, since obviously both of these passed a long time ago, I assume they're talking about the Supreme Court's docket which would include Prop 12. There is a Supreme Court case going up there, definitely going up there since it was granted. I don't know about Massachusetts Question 3. I don't know what she's talking about. Sorry. The summit ended with an interactive... uh, Don't you wish you were here for this? Just wait till you hear this. The summit ended with an interactive crisis communications workshop led by Trisha Sheehan of Dairy Management Inc. and Iowa Soybean Association's Aaron Putz. I'm not going to say anything. That included a realistic and unexpected protest scenario. Whoa. (laughs) Can you just imagine this? Sheehan's team mimicked common tactics used by animal rights extremist organizations to get attendees considering what they would do in a similar scenario. Sheehan walked through the important components of a crisis communications plan and allowed attendees to put it into practice with an interactive example. And thank you, TXC, for that lovely image you're responsible for. All right. Uh, our next story. This isn't exactly a uh, rising anxiety, but 
it was so entertaining that I wanted to share it with you. Well, it's entertaining, except for the poor bird and the poor birds. This is from the Daily Mail in the UK. Sorry to those of you in the UK for making fun of um, the royals, but, you know, I do love to. And this isn't really about the royals. It's about the Prince William's best friend. That's what he's known as. <laughs> I bet that's what he'll be known as for the rest of his life. Prince William's best friend and godfather, Prince George, blames animal rights vigilantes for police night raid on his 4,400-acre Norfolk shooting estate. All right, this <laughs> story. All right, so this best friend, whose um, name is apparently William Van Kutzem, is furious after discovering that a police swoop on his Norfolk shooting estate was triggered by animal rights vigilantes. Now, starting right off here, like vigilantes are people who take the law into their own hands. And this was a police swoop. <laughs> so already we're a little off here. Clearly, the, the police are not vigilantes. It was triggered by it. So apparently what these animal rights vigilantes did was they called the cops and reported a crime <laughs> like that makes you a vigilante now. Officers investigating wildlife crime discovered an illegal trap. Well, actually, so there was an illegal trap. So the report was actually accurate during a night raid on the it's pretty funny that they did a night raid on the 4400 acre Hillborough estate near Sandringham, which is sorry if I'm pronouncing these without with too many syllables which is owned by William Van Kutzum, godfather to Prince George. Can't mention that too often. Apparently, uh, the Hunt Investigations Team, which is a group of anti-blood sports activists, found out about this. And after there were complaints made about it, they released footage that they claimed had been filmed at the estate last month showing a goshawk caught in a ladder trap that was baited with live pigeons. So they had the evidence. <laughs> they gave it to the police. And apparently that makes them vigilantes. A source close to Mr. Van Kutzum condemned HIT as a vigilante group, which had set up cameras on private land without his permission, saying there were questions about its relationship with police and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Yeah, there are questions about it. It sounds like what they do is they report crimes to the police. <laughs> oh, my God. You just can't get enough of the British royal family, can you? Goshawks are protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981, which is why this was a crime and the police were called. And ladder traps uh, such as those used at Hillborough can be used legally, but never with live pigeons as bait. Well, I would hope not. Oh, gotta love them. I, like I said, I'm not sure this rising anxieties, but I kind of had to talk about it. All right. Amanda Radke says future of agriculture is bright. And Amanda Radke, we used to talk about her. She used to write for Beef.com. Now she's got her own website column or whatever, and it's called Radke Report. Activists may be targeting schools, but ag kids will lead the way. And many of you may know that I write children's books about farm and ranch life. Yeah, I bet you do. I bet they're really cute. I bet they're a lot of fun. I spend a lot of time in classrooms reading my stories at elementary schools across the country. Yeah, I bet you do. And I bet you give a really accurate picture of animal agriculture. On these road trips, I have pondered a lot about education and ensuring our kids receive high quality, wholesome education that prepares them for the real world. Are you really preparing them for the real world? Uh, do you have slaughterhouses in these books? Uh, uh, I doubt it. I bet they're just cute as pie. If you get to present to schools, are other speakers with different agendas invited to speak too, she has been asked. And she is sad to report that yes. 
After all, as a cattle rancher who has a keen interest in promoting beef nutrition and the benefits of cattle on the land, I obviously have a bias in my presentations and lesson goals. Well, that's really nice of you, Amanda, to to acknowledge that. But so do others. There's a Scholastic magazine, well, a series of articles, she says, in Scholastic magazine. Do you remember Scholastic magazine? We used to get that when I was a kid. I guess it's still there. A publication that goes to nearly every elementary school in the country. And they have repeatedly published anti-animal agriculture articles. I wonder what those articles really say. They call for students to reduce their meat consumption to solve climate change. Oh, my God. That's just a disgrace. She, she claims that Food, Inc., which was made like 10 years ago, is often used as the core curriculum in college courses. Is that true? Uh, I doubt it. And then she talks about animal rights activist groups uh, that have courses and lessons plans. And she mentions HSUS, and that's certainly true. They have a, a humane ed department. And PETA, is that true of PETA? Like, do they actually get into schools? I mean, she doesn't give any examples of PETA, and I really doubt that PETA would have an easy time getting into schools. Not that there's anything wrong with PETA, you know, but but they do have a somewhat radical reputation. And she doesn't give any examples, but it's always fun to throw their name in because it makes everybody mad. All right. One of the HSUS courses promises to teach the basics of spreading the word in your community, raising funds for animals and lobbying, which is asking lawmakers to give their support. By taking part in these projects, you'll be part of a nationwide group of kids working to help all animals from hounds to hens where they need it most. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. They're not just talking about dogs and cows. They also say that life is tough on tigers and elephants in circuses. It is hard on cows, pigs, and chickens in big factory-style farms. Good for HSUS. I share this, says Amanda, to remind folks that the animal rights agenda is very real, and it's reaching our young people at a critical age. Well, so are you. And at least, you know, the animal rights agenda is reaching them with the truth. So I'm okay with it. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.
Welcome to our hen house, Dash. Uh, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. I don't know a lot about your work, and I'm really eager to find out more. But actually, I'd like to start off with a story I read on your website about your experience slaughtering chickens, and which ultimately led to your going vegan and, and having a different awareness about animals. Can you tell us that story? So both my parents were poultry farmers, and growing up, I witnessed, or I, I myself, I got engaged in, in the poultry business. Uh, literally, our, I have four other siblings, but when growing up, I was the one who was invested into the business as my other siblings were into different ventures. So this means that I witnessed all kind of horrible methods we do with the animals, with the birds. If I'm to remember, I remember this specific scenario where this little guy was given a lot of medication and a lot of tabs so that because all the, the whole aim is self-centered for the farmers, they want profit at the end of the day. So they fed this little guy with a lot of medication that he could grow so fast. And at the end of it, all this guy couldn't move. Uh, the legs he had couldn't support his own weight. So whenever they bought food to the pallets, he saw that other birds could run over him, you know, because he was too heavy. So if the guy couldn't come, the farmer couldn't come and carry him to the next where the food was, he wasn't going to eat. And in many cases, there are other guys like him who end up dying. Another scenario that I can kind of remember is when during the baking process, because now here it's a different context, like the African tradition, how they do it, they get a knife, dip it into hot fire, and then cut off the bits. Uh, another thing is scenarios where they give out medication to the scare, to their hands, and the fact that they can't, they give too much, they produce, they lay very huge eggs. And what happens later when they lay huge eggs is that the intestines come out along with the eggs. So some of the farmers, at times they could they could separate these birds from the other friends and well at other time they could put it back and at the end of the day the rest of the hens could pick at the end at the bottoms of the of the other hen and at the end of the day it could it could you know what it could die. So I such such the memories and more other things that came up piling and piling and piling. And by that time I had no idea about veganism or animal rights. I, I even never told that there are animal rights or anything about veganism. So because I was like a child, I was more in, into the business. I was head of it. So I started, I started not doing slaughters because time came and I felt like I never had the right to tell who should die and who should live when people came into the houses to take. I, so I said, I kept away myself from slaughtering and I only did marketing. But then at times also with this, with time and time, it came and I was like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I think I've had enough of this. But then at the same time, I'm, I'm preaching this whole thing, but then I'm not vegan. And I don't know any idea about veganism. So I get to, in that whole process, I tell my siblings, I'm like, I'm preaching this whole thing, I'm preaching the business, blah, blah, blah. And that's the same time I lose my mom. After that time, I was with my friend, I was watching some videos from, from the Middle East and they were slaughtering, they were killing people. And I tell my friend, I never want to die like that. He's not vegan as well, but he told me, but that's the same way you kill the birds. This hit me differently because I was like, oh, it gave me a quick thing. So I go, I'm like, I'm on the internet and I'm trained. I don't know how things came about and I learned about veganism, you know, and how, what it's about. So this time I'm like, I'm saying I'm going vegan 
and I realized there's there are animal rights. But in real sense, I wasn't vegan. I was vegetarian because I couldn't tell the difference between the two. When I tell my sister that I'm going vegan, she's like, oh, so you're not going to eat eggs and milk. So that's when she told me that vegans are not supposed to, to consume eggs and milk. That was a quick thing. Then, then I, I quit on them because I already knew the history between eggs, what we do, the eggs, what the eggs industry is doing to the birds. I already knew I was already part of it. So that made me a big, a big change. So yeah, that's briefly, that's the whole thing about my... That's an extraordinary... It's an amazing story. Did this cause a, a rift between you and your family? Were they angry at you? Yeah, of course. Because now, at this time, when I was in charge of the business and my mom, so at the same time when I'm going vegan, at the same time I lose my mom. So that means I'm entirely, entirely responsible for the business, for the family business. So I'm telling them I'm preaching. At first, they think it's something I'm messing around with, but then they get to say that I'm serious. So it brought a very big group because now there's no one else in charge of the business and the business now is failing. And my, my dad is there, so what now? I'm like, I'm quitting. So this brought a very, because now there was no more any income failing and the business failed. It closed, it shut. When that happened, there was no one else. Because my two big brothers were in, were in the non-profit world and another was in procurement. And then my sisters were too young to carry the business on. And my dad was already occupied with something else. So this caused the business to fail completely. So that means that you're coming home, the time I'm trying to figure my life out, I don't know what really is happening next to me because this is the only business that I entirely know how to run. I don't know any other business. So this is me coming back home and they have, they prepare meat and blah, blah, and they're mocking and all that. And at that same time, I'm still staying with them at home. So this means that, uh, and the questions are like, for my parents are like, what are you going to do? Now, this is what you had. I can't help you in anything else. That's what my dad is saying. This is the only business that you know. Try to figure your life out. So this means that I'm in a new era where I have no idea about it. Because my next idea is start looking for jobs. And I'm on the internet. I'm trying to figure out animal related, you know, animal activism about anywhere. And there was completely nothing around me in Uganda. No organization that's like animal rights activism. So I decided to leave home and I'm like, let me just, you know, try try my luck or whatever. Because at that time it was too much between me and my family. Yeah, there's no way I, I can tell my dad that please can I have capital, I need to start this. There's no way he's going to say yes. You know, yes, there is an opportunity you've, you've missed to them. They see it as a business opportunity. But this is something I've had enough of because of the too much experience because of the time. I spent there. I witnessed every kind of horrible, horrible things. Imagine because I was born into it, right from the moment I was born to the moment I gained a conscious that I could understand that was the business I was in. So I was so much interested. That makes me I have zero knowledge about anything else. So it was really, really a very, very tough time. Yeah, it sounds like an enormously tough time. And it ultimately led to the Podskra Foundation, which is what we're going to be talking about. Am I pronouncing that right, Podskra? Yeah, Podushka. Podushka. And can you just tell people briefly, and then we'll get into a lot of detail, but tell people briefly what the foundation is. So Podushka, it's a Croatian term that means support. So I got this term after the World Cup finals, soccer World Cup finals, where we had Croatia and France at the finals. So... I chose Croatia because the Croatian team was the underdog and no one ever saw it reach the finals. 
and it would, it would inspire them. So I was among those people who it would inspire. And I was like, oh, I should, I should go for it. So that's why I chose that question because of it was an underdog and it rose. It never won the cup, but then it created enough. So it's the same thing with the journey that I wanted to create. I know it's, it's not going to be an easy journey and I may not win the whole, everyone's heart, but at the end of the day, I'm going to create that great impact that I want. I may not be able to live to see the results, but the seeds that we want to create and change. So that's that's the whole story relating it to what we're trying to do. So Podoshka Foundation is a, a vegan-based foundation that looks at both humans and non-humans. So with the non-humans, specifically, we kind of center focus on the farmed animals. Why farmed animals? Because each and everyone here who's trying to fight for the animals, they're fighting for the wild animals. No one's looking, taking their time to look at onto the farmed animals. And whereas with the human speech, we are looking at kids and children and women. However, we have various projects, but every kind of project that we do is strictly vegan-based, no matter what kind of people it's trying to reach. Because the whole idea is to create, a, we envision a world where both humans and non-humans can coexist peacefully. So the whole idea is to have the humans make informed choices that ethically support and improve the lives of the non-humans. I love the way things are really interwoven, showing the benefit to each. And a lot of people, when confronting poverty and vulnerability among humans, think that incorporating animals is just too hard. Why do you think that it's important to do them both? Because well, the whole idea is that coexistence and peacefully, and we all have to benefit with each other. For example, like let me say, if you look at how vegans and how the animal industry is affecting the anger, the hunger, world anger today, how people are, are bringing up large farms and, and we are failing. So it's the same thing. In one of our projects, we are looking at we can where we look at. Let me say we are providing people with with meals, food, and these foods are completely plant-based. And we are giving them food, and we are telling them that the reason why we are giving you this food it's because we don't want anyone's life to be at a cost. It's because we want to also want you to respect the other heart of the animals. So at the end of the day, they're getting the information. They are saving a life, and they're surviving. You look at another project whereby we are supporting the women who are, who are badly off, and we are telling them, hey, please, you're under a bad situation financially. How can we hope at the same time as we are promoting animal health? This is easy. Let's get animal free built, free animal built free products, raw materials, make a cloth out of this, let's sell this. So at the end of the day, you're you're uplifting the lives, you're telling people this product you're trying to buy is quality free. As someone who made this product knows that they can't make this bug out of a crocodile skin, out of a snake skin, out of a cow skin, because these people, all these creatures, all these, they are, they are sentient beings, they need a life. So they are deciding to do this. At the end of the day, you're creating a weighing scale and you're putting everything at a balance. No one's, at the end of the day, no one is suffering. I'm happy because I'm putting on a cause to free and there's an animal at the same time I'm advocating for, for a life to be spared. So it's basically, it's logic at the end of the day. You know, it's just simple. It's, it's just simple logic. Only that we are, people are just failing to face the shoes. I totally agree. I love the way you put that. It's just simple logic, and yet so many people can't see it. The situation we are in now, you look at the situation we are in now, why I'm saying it's logic. The whole COVID stuff, things are getting, you know, and all and so on and so forth. The whole COVID stuff. 
it's logic where it came from and how we can we can prevent the next one and sometimes we don't have we don't have to spend even a minute explaining it so yeah yeah so, tell us a little bit more you mentioned food distribution tell us a little bit more how that works how, what kind of food distribution do you do and what kinds of foods do you distribute and and where we have a variety of food distribution projects. Uh, there is one that happens in schools, and that is called the Vegan School Feeding Program. Now, this feeding program goes to schools that completely don't offer a meal to their kids in a day. So you find that kids come to school, already coming to school is a problem. Maybe even you find that most of these schools are kind of very cheap or free, but they have to pay maybe something. And at the end of the day, parents can't afford to pack lunch, breakfast, or anything. And the school itself also can't afford to provide the lunch. So this means that the kids are going to spend the whole day hungry. At the end of the day, them studying is going to be useless because they are studying in the empty stomachs. It's nothing they're going to process. So what we do is that we go to the schools, we launch this project, and before we launch that project, we talk to the school administration and the schools themselves where we are launching this project and why we are having plant-based foods and why we are not having any kind of meals, why we are not having a meat attached where you're not having and chickens attached. So we hold it under the school campaigns, other vegan school campaigns, and we're like, we are going to be providing, let's say, close to apparently we have two schools under, and we provide 400 meals each day. So the whole idea is we talk to them and we're like, hey, this happens from Monday to Friday because that's when kids are at school and we're providing them lunch. So we are doing this because we want to save animals. We're not giving you, you didn't know we are not giving you meat because we believe that these animals need to, to live. However, every time when you're talking to people about the ethical beat, people like here, that's an experience. A very few people, especially with the local, local rural communities, very few people are going to understand the ethical beat. So they are going to listen to you more when you talk about the health aspects because we have high rates of hypertension, blood pressure, diabetes, and so on. So that's my angle when I'm talking to the rural kind of environments because that's what they listen to. And another thing is that with this kind of rural environment, uh, these people already, they, they can't afford the meat, not by choice, but financial reasons. So it's at one point, it's kind of easy for them to disseminate that information. You know, you're like, yes, I understand you're going to eat meat once in a year, maybe during Christmas season, but what, what's the use of you keeping your body so clean and safe and just this one time you, you, you turn it into a tomb of diseases and so on and so forth. So that's the one project that we call a vegan school feeding project. And then another project we have is called a compassionate feeding program. So with a compassionate feeding program, it's basically this happens around town in slum areas. And it's basically for people living in slums and people can't afford to find a meal or the kids, most especially because there's a high number of kids on the streets. So what we do is that we, we liaise with our local councils and we're like, we want to be providing food on certain such dates. So this food, uh, it's always warm, of course, warm and hot. And we provide with this meal, we basically with a compassionate feeding program, we basically provide rice, cabbages, avocado, greens like amaranthas and so on, and then rice. So we package it and we give the plates already when it's already packaged. However, with a vegan school campaign, we give kosho, that's maize flour, beans and rice. So it's for, for Monday, Wednesday and Thursday, it's beans and kosho. Kosho is maize flour when it's crushed. And then two days, it's rice. So that's more cheaper because that we try to make it more cheap so that because we have high number of kids. 
we need to feed. And whereas with our compassion feeding program, it basically is supposed to provide only 300 meals a week. That's for 100 people that we target every week. Whereas with compassion, so we have the school program, it's about 400 meals a day. So we have to make it as cheap as possible so that we feed very many kids in the school. Of course, of course. So in, in a lot of instances, is the food that you're giving people really in a line with traditional diets? Yeah. Because I would assume that traditionally there's not a lot of meat in the in most African diets. Is that true? So basically, I, my personal, the, the way I do my activism is that I never bring in any kind of Western world kind of alternatives. Because if I try to bring them in, it's like, it's going to bring up excuses for their prices because they are so damn expensive. So the whole idea is when, you're, when I'm promoting veganism, it's like I try to put it on a local context because I need people to understand it on a local context, not in the European context. Because sometimes people will say that, ah, oh, that's a European context, veganism is from the Western world, you know. But then they forget that 99% of all our local, our staple foods are vegan. So the problem is, like, from schools, you look at kids, uh, like myself, I was in boarding school for my past, for the past 18 years, because I started boarding school when I was six years up to the time when I was 17. So that means that every day I had to eat beans and maize flour and rice. So when I'm out of school and you're telling me that beans are high in proteins, I'm like, come on. You know, I've, I've been eating beans for the rest of, like, Entirely half of my life, or the half of my life. So these youths want to change to something else. There's that transition, that nutrition transition, and they are touching it to financial status. They're touching it to parties, to a good life. They think like uh, meat. You go to a party without meat, it's not a party. So that's one of other problems. So back to the question. Yes, all all the meals that we give, a hundred percent tradition and vegan based. It's like when we have maybe a food sampling event. And then we try to put in uh, something more extra, you know, for the people to get excited because at first at one point we are tired of the local context and we need to mix our local context, our local food, something international or something, you know. And this excites them. and like, ah, oh, you can eat potatoes in this way. You can eat rice in this way. You can prepare. So we just, yeah, by then at the end, of, we just try to prepare it differently than what they, how they prepare it traditionally. But then at the end of the day, it's still the same type of food. It's still a traditional food. And I've heard a lot of people talking about that approach as being a decolonizing approach to to diet, that going back to traditional diets and not incorporating a lot of Western foods is really a decolonial kind of kind of approach. Do you do you think of it that way? Yeah, because you look at how meat came into our our context, you know, because literally in back in the days and the African tradition society, yes, there was hunting. And but then meat wasn't has wasn't consumed on a daily basis, you know. So it's after the slavery, the trading comes in, colonialism comes in, and they're introducing this other kind of cash crops and so on. Then trading comes in, people start to consume meat, and they start to attaching it on a financial basis and financial growth kind of status. So that alone, like I said, staple foods 100% vegan, because now you look at my tribe and their staple food, specifically matoke. Matoke is like they're called matoke. They're Thailand bananas but then they are steamed with beans. So matoke, you look at even some of the nomads that we have here who live on pastoralism, they don't even put on animal skins. They put on cotton, some kind of clothes. You never find them putting on a cup. They are nomads, they rare animals, but then you can never find them putting on an animal skin. You find them putting on clothes, just uh, 
tying themselves here, covering only this part. But when it's, it's a cotton fold, so you just move on to what colonialism is doing. They're trying to killing a plant and then they're making something out of it. And then someone wants a Chanel bag, wants someone wants wants because of all of that, and it's, it's killing us. So the whole idea is we want we're trying to promote veganism on an, an African context level rather than not on an European context level. And this thing is damaging us because at the beginning of it all, like when I was studying with Anonymous for the Voice List, we were trying to do, I was trying to, I had no zero experience. And this is like in 2019, I had zero experience about activism and I'm trying to, to do activism on an European context. So we move on to a, a, the biggest mall here in the city and we want to do activism because we have seen that's how Europeans are doing it. And we, we, were, we were literally arrested for it. We had to run for our lives because I didn't understand the language was speaking, but my other colleague was understanding it was like, hey, Dash, we need to run. These guys are coming to arrest us. So you, you were you were handing out leaflets, you were talking to people? No, we were trying to do a cube. Oh, okay, a cube, yeah. And then yeah. they were like, hey, what you're trying to do is bad for our business. They could actually beat us up and we, there's no way we could report. Because you look at here, literally, well, not everyone, but literally most of our police are, are corrupt. They all just, they, once someone higher ranks does something, very few people are going to give attention to you. So that means that we had to rethink, because even there are spaces where we had to do a queue, and we had to pay for security for people to get us just in case, because we were next to, we were next to a small butcher. So we had to pay for security, for our security. So if you look at some things are worth it, yes, but then others are not. Because once we have, we as activists, we have also to put our lives. Because once something happens to my life, that means mm, there's no other me who's going to come up and fight. You know, that's one minus. Instead, it should be a one plus. So that means we had to sit down and think on how best we can promote up, we can promote veganism at the same time. Because that's another thing, why we have to do all this, we have to balance other humans and non-humans, you're like, ah, but Africa, you have so many problems. Why are you focusing on animals when people are dying in the war? Why are you focusing on animals when, why are you feeding, why are you having a sanctuary when people are hungry? So that's why when I came, let's uplift poverty, let's uplift animal lives, let's uplift education for kids, let's uplift animal rights at the same time. I love that approach. It's so positive and you can reach people who you wouldn't otherwise reach. It's a win-win. It's it, it's good for everyone, both the people and the animals. Can you talk a little bit about agriculture? Because a lot of what goes on in the talk about vegan agriculture and raising plants, and it, it has to do with people are always saying, well, in Africa, they couldn't do that because you have to graze animals. There's land that you have to graze animals on. But you have another project. I think it's called Project Grow that that is really focused on plant-based agriculture for Africa. Is that true? So. About Project Grow, Project Grow is basically focused for the slums people, people who live in slums. And so the reason why you're focusing on on the slum areas is because uh, the kind of beneficiaries we are looking at, uh, there's a high rate of HIV or sexual workers in slums, and there's a high rate of of domestic violence, uh, there's a high rate of teenage mothers, and so on and so forth. But then the major concept for, for this project Grow because these people are so much congested in slums. Like, there's no space for them to do the farming, despite even the very high rates of poverty. 
there's a high crime rate, there's uh, a problem for them to find meals in a day. So you find that from house, there's no space, it's just from house to house, there's even, there are just corridors, small, small corridors, and even sometimes I can't fit in these corridors. So what we said is like, how can we promote a veganism into this, this aspect? Because at the same time, we look at normal socioeconomic problems and we turn them as opportunities to spread veganism. So you, you look at this as a financial, a social problem. So how can you turn this problem into a solution? How can you find a solution at the same time, make it as an opportunity for us to talk about veganism in such a community? So like, let's introduce this project. So Project Grow specifically teaches people on how to grow food in containers, uh, polythene, plastics, or even old clothes. So these containers, they turn these this containers, the clothes, the plastic, into the gardens. So you find that someone has their tomatoes, uh, a tree of their tomatoes, uh, that has about 15 of tomatoes, but then in a small tin hanging on the wall. So that means that, uh, they, all they have to do is go out of their house or at the window, just get the food and have it for their own consumption. The whole idea is to promote a veganism. That's the base, the foundation, promote veganism, because we need to tell them, why are we teaching you backyard or modern farming? And there's nothing like, because people are like, hey, you're not giving us chicken, you're not giving us goods. The government's giving us goods. We're like, hey, we are, the reason is because they're promoting animal rights. And then they're like, because when we talk about animal rights, the first thing that comes to their mind are the white animals. It's never like, or maybe dogs or cats. It's never about this animal. So, and then you bring it about, and they're like, ah, everyone gets surprised. This is what you're talking about. So, the whole idea is that for them, they have nutritious food. This food is nutritious and it's fresh, and, and which you never find anywhere because, and then it's organic. If you look at the kind of things they spray on the tomatoes that are not organic, you find a lot of things that they do to, to the plants. So, our idea is we give about 17 types of veggies. And with these, those types, there is five kinds of spices and then two kinds of herbs. Because the slums, there's high rate of, there's a lot of stagnant water. So the mosquito, there's out of malaria. So we, we provide with these plant repellents that they plant around their houses to repel away the insects, the mosquitoes, and so on and so forth. So the whole idea is this kind of, that means there are about 12 veggies. Or we look at avocados, carrots, spinach, kale, eggplants, and so much more. Twelve types. Then we look at cheese spices. We look at also the two kind of herbs and so on and so forth. So the other idea is to have them get the nutritious veggies right at their doorsteps. And those who have surplus, they can also have can also sell it to their neighbors because at the end of the day they want income for themselves because we're talking about people who earn less than a dollar a day or even nothing so that means they have to get money out of this so where possible those with small small spaces we utilize those spaces as much as we can for the rest of the community and we have so far we launched that program in the first wave i think that was 2020 we sampled 10 families and then last year early we got a grant from food for life that we supported 50 families with a grant. And so that means that with 50 families, about 200 beneficiaries were being provided with food, with veggies for a meal. And they can get about two meals out of these veggies because they have different kinds of veggies. You know, that means someone can say maybe to have an eggplant or with kale or with spinach or coriander and so on and so forth. 
So they have those meals or then they change. So that means they can't be having that same type of meal every day. So that gives chance for them to have these plants last longer as they're consuming a different kind of plant, a different kind of vegetable. That sounds like an amazing program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, can really lift up people's lives. Yeah, the program ended around last, late last year. So now we are looking into, we are looking into for more, more grants and so on so that we can we do that same, pro, the same project. How do you raise money? It's mostly... Your money mostly comes through grants? Well, yeah, initially, before that, because me and my colleagues, we do graphic designing. So the whole idea is that we have our own income planted into promoting the organization. But apparently right now, I think we have two projects that have been funded. We have the Vegan Feeding Campaign and the Compassionate Feeding Program. Compassionate Feeding Program is about to end and has been funded by our welfare world. It's ending this, the, the grant is getting done this month. And then we have Magic Maple Foundation that's also helping us with a vegan feeding program at school and also the compassionate feeding program. And also it's it's getting done this month. And then we also have an upcoming grant that we got through Provege. That's the vegan school campaign where we go to schools. But then basically uh, 70% we, we raise it on a personal basis from us. Oh, you do? Yeah, like right. from our own income because... Are we trying to, you know, it's something that we are doing, not because we are told, but out of passion uh, of what we want to do and what we are getting there. And then another thing is that most of the organization that we run to to get funds, they always want something that's already in progress, something that has been funded. So that means we have to raise money on the mouth uh, with sample. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So that means we, <laughs> yeah. we have to get our own money. We, we sample the project. We show, hey, this is what we have done so far and this is where, what we are projecting and this is kind where we want to reach. So yes, me and my team, we, we use our own from graphic designing and other gigs that we raise. So we raise some money. We sample our project. We're like, so let's sample this project and see. And then we, we look for funding for it, for this project. So yeah, that's our idea. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing amazing work. I do want you to tell people how they can find out more about you and, and support you if they wish. But before that, I just kind of wanted to ask you a really big question. Do you think that Africa in particular, and perhaps in particular Uganda, has a particularly important role in turning the earth in new directions? The West has gone so far in, in the wrong direction with climate change exploding and with, with what we're doing to animals turning earth into, it's just, it's a nightmare what has been done. Do you think perhaps there can be leadership from Africa on these issues? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And, they, and I think they already did as well trying to come up, you know, and they're spearheading. More so with the climate change direction. With our aspect, as because me, I focus, I'm, I put a lot of focus on animal activism rather than the environment and the health aspect. We kind of lack enough inspiration within our sector. People are in, and those who are trying to, they're just trying to cover themselves within and they're not doing the, the real thing they're supposed to be doing. But I, on a personal basis, I think, yes, we can. Because if you look at the kind of work that I'm doing, sometimes I think I'm doing my work and I'm like, I'm seeing no change, you know. But then through that kind of people have inspired, both on the local context at the African level and the Western world, they're like, hey, we are doing this because of what you're doing, because of what you're going through. You've changed lives. And that alone, I'm like, hey, I need to do, I need to keep pushing. I need to keep going. This truth be told that the kind of work that we do is exhausting because teaching people, going to people, and you're telling them this is only good. 
because what culture has really done for them, what culture has made them think that animals are there for us, and you're trying to change a mind, especially for the grown-up minds, but most of the times it's mental damaging and so on. But because we target different people, we target different age groups, you find that a certain project that you're doing for them, maybe for the teens, is mentally supporting you to keep on fighting for the ones that you're trying to push for the old age or for the special people. So, yeah, as at large as a context, each and every day we are growing as of Africa and within us, people are waking up. Because now, like I said, all our projects that we do target a specific group of people. You look at the vegan school campaign where we are targeting, we are going to schools, so that targets majorly teens and school-going children. You look at the street activism that we do, that major, that focuses on the street-going people. You look at for the old age, where we reach them through our feeding programs. We are starting up clubs at universities, focus on the youths, because most of the youths, like my friends specifically, I can't just go up to them and I'm like, hey, go vegan. The first thing they're going to do, they're going to put me into an argument, start being out facts. So you look at uh, vegan university clubs that are going to be uh, maybe handling debates, handling, you know, our community outreaches and so on and so forth. And then you look at also the very young toddlers because our, our activism begins from the age of six, kids of six years. It's not that, you know, effective, but where we see it's effective, we went to this primary school, and for primary school, it basically has kids from about seven years to 11 years, and we talked about veganism. So as a prim- it was at this school, so kids went back home to their parents, and they refused to eat meat. They refused totally. It was a very big number of kids. And we were supposed to go back to this school for four labs and create, because every after we go to these schools, we create clubs, we create vegan clubs that we equip with resources, t-shirts, leaflets, and more more resources. So when we were supposed to go back to school, because we had only we had only focused about two classes, so we had to go back to that school and you know engage the whole school. However, the school suspended us. And yeah, like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, like, you, you come <laughs> that, back. I've seen the same thing yeah. happen here. You shouldn't come back because parents were raising concerns. Our kids are no longer eating meat. Our kids, and we don't want this. So, like, because uh, here is one thing: when you are going to schools, uh, what we realize that we can't go to schools, and we're like, "Hey, we have come here. We need to talk about vegans. That's going to be a very big no." So, what we do? We have other aspects that we talk about. We talk about bullying. We talk about depression among kids, anti-drug abuse, life skills, and this conflict. So, we draft letters. To school administration, and we are like, hey, we want to We need a platform to talk to your kids about bullying, anti-depression among teens, anti-drug abuse. Would you please give us the platform? So when we go to the school, yes, we talk about this. We address them according how we are supposed to. And at the end of the day, when we are done, we, that's when we bring about veganism. You know, so we mutually like attach it to to bullying. Like we first introduce bullying, and then like, hey, hey, hey. Then we show some footage so like what you understand. So and kids are. Kids are the best people you can ever work with. They usually late, and their their conscience is so free and like for the for the youths because with their youths they are going to their ego is going to block them from accessing the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas the kids are going to be so free, like hey, this animal is depressed. This animal is being bullied because that's what they always say. Animals are bullied, you know. So kids going back from my life and consuming animals, we don't want to do this. So parents are coming to school admission and like hey, our kids are stopping. What's happening? So the school is like, hey, please do not come back to our school. We don't need your services anymore. It sounds like you're approaching activism with such a a wise, like you've tried things that didn't work, like your cube and going in and just 
selling veganism and 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 then you're adjusting and working with people's attitudes and and managing to survive so that's that's the probably the most important thing to be able to do when you're an activist kind of make those adjustments to make it work but i totally agree that the kids, and especially in the context of anti-bullying, because of course, farm animals are the most bullied creatures on earth and kids are the ones who are able to see that. So you're doing amazing work. I'm so glad we had a, a chance to to hear about it. Before I let you go, just tell people where they can find you online and on social media so that if they're interested, they can follow up. On our website is kodoshikafoundation.org and we are on LinkedIn, we are on Instagram, and we Facebook, and we are there as Kodoshka Foundation. And we will put all of those links in our show notes so people will be able to find them. Dash, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to hear about the work that you're doing. It's remarkable. Um, yeah, thank you. Maybe one other project I didn't mention uh, was... Oh, sure. Uh, it's called the Lady Project. Now, the Lady Project are equipped specifically focuses on women, and these are teenage mothers, like I said, HIV-positive women, domestic violence victims and women under strict poverty. So what we do is that we teach women on how to make materials like clothes, jewelry, and so on and so forth. However, we always tell them why we are we are using cruelty-free materials. So what we do is that maybe say if a woman comes up and we teach her on how to make her clothes, we create we have to make sure that we look for market for her own for her products that she has made because this is a problem where where many institutions are teaching kids and people that hey, uh, let me teach you how to sew. So someone makes a cloth and you go and find them tons and tons of clothes. They don't know how to, they don't have a market. So what we do is upon us as an organization, so we teach them on how to make cloth free products from African fabric. And then we look for the market as, the, as an organization. So so we create the market. So money that comes out of, part of it goes to the organization, another part goes to the women. The part that goes to the women is to improve their day-to-day lives for themselves. Whereas the one that goes to the to the organization, we use it to empower and recruit more women. So our plan is to have 40 women per, per session, also per, per, per term, per two months, where we have 20 women who come in the evening and then 20 women who come in in the morning. So it's like they work in shifts and the weekends are for the, for the experts, the ones who have learned to make their own products, whereas the weekdays are for, for lessons. And this program is, is hoping to resume soon because we have been down due to COVID, and initially we used to rent our sewing machines, and the company we were renting from sold it, sold their products, so now we have been home, and we never had space, so now we are looking into having a space and having our own machines, and we kickstart everything. Well, do you think you'll ever make those products available online? Yeah, actually, speaking of that, we have been, in the past years, before COVID, we had planned to have a fundraiser with an organization. It's called the Sentient Project. It's headed by a, a gentleman in, in the US called Daniel Tabat, uh, who does photography. So he comes here annually. He was here last year and we had a photo shoot from the products that we made and he moved with some of the products to, to the US. And hopefully this year we're going to have uh we're going to have an ST store come up online. And also on our website, if all goes well, we shall have a store online to sell this product as we are waiting for the fashion show to kickstart, hopefully, if all goes well this year. That's very exciting. We'll be looking forward to that. And thank you for telling us about it. And thanks for joining us today, Dash. This has really been fascinating. I hope we can keep in touch with you. Yeah, sure thing. The pleasure is always mine. 